let's go ahead. Um, we'll start with prayer. And um, then what I want to look at tonight is a short passage of scripture that discusses in some detail one of the whole one of the larger subjects we want to talk about. And so um, I'll give you the scripture as soon, we, as soon as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Thank you for a place to meet and for everyone that's here. And guide us as we do our best to try to live in this world and be good representatives and shining lights for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 14, 13. We spoke last week a bit about Romans 14, which discusses what I think, this is kind of an old term, but it's um, convictions, okay? You know what I mean? But people have a personal conviction, something they do or don't do, in spite of the fact others may. Um, and 14 deals with among um, believers, some feel free to do certain things, some don't feel free to do it, and how they're to treat one another. We talked somewhat about that last week, um, but 13 of Romans, just really the first um, seven verses, discuss the topic that I want to look at <clears throat> um, tonight. Starting with verse 1, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist, those powers, are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive, will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are, are not a cause of fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a it, or the power, and the power, those who hold the power, are ministers of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. For he is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, meaning you don't want to get in trouble, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom fear or reverence to whom reverence, honor to whom honor. Okay? Now this isn't the, isn't the only place in Scripture um, that addresses secular or civil authorities and our relationship as Christians um, to them. Now the first thing I think we can... Um, let me just ask you this. As I read this, be subject to all the powers there for your good and so forth. Anybody here heretic, heathen enough to think, man, alive, I don't know about this. <clears throat> Anybody want to raise your hand? <laughs> You're total heathen. Listen, th then, then I am. I read this and I think, wait a minute. Not that I'm questioning what God's saying, but I'm thinking, okay, um, there's an awful, awful, awful lot in this world um, through civic, civil authorities that's bad. So how do we interpret this? To what extent do we are we to be in subjection? And another question would be then, um, at what point, or is there a point, is it ever justifiable to resist the authority? Does this um, 
Now, obviously, we can't read all the other scriptures that have to, ta- to deal with this subject. <clears throat> but um, is this so, for instance, I think most of us here believe that the Revolutionary War, God made our nation. But it came about by rebellion. Was that justified? If it, if it wasn't, how can we say God raised us up? Um, and if we think about it, I wasn't alive then, <laughs> no matter what some of you might think. Um, what America rebelled against in Britain was nothing compared to what some governments even today are doing to their people. Um, we have to remember that on the other side of the, and I'm not going to get off onto this, but on the other side of the Atlantic in the 1770s, um, 60s and everything leading up to the Revolutionary War was John Wesley and the Methodists and a revival literally like the world possibly never saw before. And it's interesting to read John Wesley and the Methodists in England deeply puzzled about what the ruckus was over. I mean, we're not that bad, <laughs> their point was. And, and Wesley, he ended up describing it when America successfully broke away. He responded in, I suppose, two ways. One, he's, he just called it, he said, this is strange providence. Um, I don't, God allowed it, I don't know why. But I know God knew about it. Second, sent missionaries over here. Um, Sent Methodist preachers. And of course, there were some people that were still emigrating here. And so Methodism then took a foothold in the United States. And by the time, um, somewhere around the, the first decade of the 1800s, the number of Methodists in America was more than double the 150,000 that were in England. Um, so, um, but I say, I say that to, to say that um, sometimes it's a little hard to judge when do you resist the authorities that be. Now, um, <clears throat> So maybe, let me say a couple things, and then we, I just want to give, give us some time to answer some questions to um, you know, consider um, some of these thoughts. Uh, a little bit, uh, this is just review, kind of a parent, uh, parentheses here of review. Um, in this case, how does a Christian live in relation to the civic, civil re, uh, government in this case there is this there's the same set of rules um, and guideposts to arrive at an answer for a lot of the ethical questions we face there there's a foundation that I think has four layers um, and they they'll the most sure one is the is the bottom one, and then on top of that are elements of making a decision of what's right and what is wrong um, that we can rely on. First, the the gr- ground floor cornerstone is scripture. What does God plainly say in Scripture? Second, let me say this before I give you the second. I, please don't misunderstand me here. But even Peter, I, I'll, I'll, I'll hide behind Peter. Peter said there are, speaking of Paul's writings, and Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. 
Peter said in many of Paul's writings are, he said, many things hard to be understood. Okay? He said, which the unspiritual will twist to their own destruction. Okay, what am I saying here? I'm saying that it's not God's fault. It's our difficulty in understanding. But not every single verse of Scripture is clear. I don't know sometimes how to interpret. I don't know the, I'm not sure that I know without a question. That verse means this, okay? So while scripture is the ground floor cornerstone source of authority, the second one is we call either tradition or church history the history of others closer to the apostles in just time, people who wrote and they were in the 100s AD. Some of them, there are a few letters written. Um, Irenaeus is one who testified to hearing St. John preach. Now John lived to about almost 100 AD. Um, so you have some people who wrote some things about the scripture and about the teachings of Christianity as early as the 100s AD who heard at least one of the apostles them, himself. So we rely on those people. We don't call their writings scripture. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore infallible without error. We're not saying that about the early Christian writers, but that whole century after century after century of them who went through the great, great um, fights, doctrinal war over how best to explain the Trinity how could Jesus be both fully man and fully God? They fleshed out those ideas over three, four, five hundred years. Okay? So it's very wise and it is informative to go back and see closer to the fountainhead what did the people then, how'd they interpret this verse? Or how did they what did they believe about a certain issue, okay? Um, then the third um, source of information or aid in helping us find out what is right and what is wrong is scripture, tradition, reason, or logic thinking. Now, there's a real big gap, unfortunately. It, that, that strata of the foundation is, can be somewhat squishy, okay? Um, meaning, it's fallen human beings like us who look at Scripture, look at what early church saints taught and then we apply our own learning information whatever whatever level little or a lot and try to apply our thinking to discover what is the scripture teaching here what's the way best way to apply this teaching what's the best way to live it out in the world okay then fourth, the final one, and even though we're going from bottom up to top, the top is not the strongest, the bottom is. The top is the probably, it's, it's reliable to a certain extent, but it's the most unreliable of all four, okay? And that is our own 
personal experience. Okay? Um, the Bible, the gospel, salvation, faith, forgiveness of sins, all these things are intended to be personally experienced. It doesn't do any good for any of us, including the Bible, to talk about forgiveness of sins if I can't personally experience forgiveness of sins. That God can break the chains of the habits of sin I don't care if it's not experienceable, if I can't experience it myself. So there is a, um, there is a, what, a faculty there that also can kind of confirm or corroborate the other pieces of evidence like scripture, tradition, so forth. There's a per that's kind of a capstone we can say, you know what? I've read the Bible. I've read some of these ancient um, church fathers. I've read up to John Wesley. I've read, you know, whatever. Martin Luther in the 1500s. Um, and I've felt the same things they described. I understand what it means to trust Jesus and have light and forgiveness and peace flood my heart like Luther described like John Wesley described like millions of other people I experienced that too well that's corroborating that backs up that's a confirming witness okay now the problem with experience of course is it's largely based on feelings often to some degree feelings are not re very uh, um, trustworthy often um, and well <laughs> here, I've given you this quote before I don't know if you remember it John Wesley said there are three sources for everything that appears to be supernatural this was a way sort of a way to judge feelings you may have or experiences you may have. Um, he said there are three sources for what appears to be supernatural. One, obviously, is God. Two, is the devil. The devil does spiritual things. Just a little quick side note there. Remember when the servants of Job, as Job was the the terrible trial was just unfolding on him and a servant came and said this happened that happened that happened they're followed by another one who said this happened one came and said the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed all of the sheep and he was you know he had thousands tens of thousands of sheep consumed all the sheep we know it wasn't the fire of God it was Satan. We see the backstory. Job couldn't. That appeared to be supernatural. That was God. The servants figured it was God, but it wasn't. So Wesley's three is God, Satan, or your own overheated imagination. Now, the frankly a huge percentage of things that appear to be supernatural, I think, are you ate an anchovy pizza too late the night before, okay? And you, you know, you had visions, okay? Um, <clears throat> I read a book, not the whole book, but just kind of a summary of it. Some guy that claimed that he had you know, he was in some trance for I don't know how many hours. He went to heaven, he went to hell, saw hell, he saw heaven, and he got a whole bunch of new information and revelations from God that are kind of in addition to what we have in Scripture. Okay? Well, first of all, then how do you respond to that? First, you respond with Scripture. How do I know that that's right or wrong? 
Well, Scripture says, at the tail end of Revelation, you add anything to the, this word, and God said, I'll add every single plague that's in it to you. And he says, if you take anything away from this, your name's going to be taken out of the book of life. Okay? So anybody then that says, I had an experience in which I received revelations of brand new truths additional of the Scripture, okay, I don't need to go any further. The Scripture says, that's crazy. Can't happen. It's not real. But if it's not quite that blatantly clear, you look at logic, you look at what old, you know, or, uh, church history taught. Um, you chalk it up then to the unreliability of emotional uh, conditions that can sometimes produce visions of the night or dreams or whatever. They're unreliable. <clears throat> and so they can easily be affected by what you may be going through, um, whatever, okay? Experience <clears throat> then, um, as I said, is least reliable. However, it can also be um, when it's in line with Scripture, tradition, and reason. God doesn't do stupid things ridiculous things. He may do things that are hidden at the time from us and we may not understand them, but God doesn't do crazy stuff. He never, ever, ever contradicts himself. Ever. Yeah. So when, we're, so when it tells us to uh, obey authorities, the government, how do we know that's not spiritual authority? How do we know that's not divine government? Because I, I was just looking at Isaiah Son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, etc. And then um, the other one is is in Colossians. You know, it's uh, first uh, first uh, first chapter sixteen seventeen. So for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers, or authorities. How do you know that's not the throne of God? And, and those types of powers, uh, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So to me, when, when I'm hearing that in the Bible, it's so, it's so hard to, to obey governments a lot of times because you know how corrupt they become over time, even the United States. Originally, it was, you know, based on God. I mean, even under currency, it says, in God we trust. You don't trust the money. Yeah, They keep yeah. telling you, trust <clears throat> God, and then that gets corrupted, every civilization. So how do we know that, uh, you know, Scripture is not talking about a divine government? I think, I think without any question, Isaiah is speaking of the kingdom of God. You know, the, the government shall be upon you know he is he is the king the king but we do know that god for purposes of order and so forth ordained and constituted civil authority mankind's authority um, in a sense you have the earliest set of uh, earliest arrangement of of authority of order even in Adam and Eve, that the family was first. And then after the fall, the fall, I don't think you'd ever have anything more than the spiritual government if there were no fall. The fall necessitated um, an authority to um, retain order, to enforce law, to um, exact retribution, vengeance. Um, it says here, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. Um, there's, there's clearly the, um, 
well, again, the necessity because of the fall <clears throat> of establishing human order. And so I think even in this passage, it, it clearly, um, I don't think we could say it doesn't mean the government of God. Though he makes the point here that God, God ordained that, that authority to be exerted by men, so much so that if you resist the man, you're resisting God. So there's a close, not blending, but a close relationship between um, the power <clears throat> that God has ordained men should administer. Now, what I still want to get to is what do you do that God ordained God's ordained the power it may be exerted or administered by men who are not of God what do we do there there are oftentimes that you have so you have a dual situation where you can have a moral leader and a moral and good law and that's the best of both worlds the authority um, ordained of God to keep order in the fallen world to raise armies to make laws to defend you know our people and so forth are necessary because of sin. Uh, that's plunged us into a different setting that we've got. Um, we often, way more often than not, we have the power, the authority itself that is ordained of God, handled by people who are far from, from godly. Um, we're still, we're still um, instructed. Well, I, I think of another scripture that is <clears throat> the best we can tell. Peter said, honor the king. Okay. Anybody, wanna, anybody know who the king was then? The emperor? Anybody know? Nero, you know, <laughs> um, so, but what the, I think what the Christian has to remember, I have to respect the office because God established the office and the power that is wielded. I can do that without having personal respect for the person who is occupying that office and that's a to me that's a pretty that's a fine line um, but I think I think it's a line we have to maintain or we can harm our um, we can harm Christ's reputation if our even our opposition to the uh, work of a office holder. Um, if I don't respect him, I have to respect the power that he um, exerts because God said, I'm the one. Here's another scripture. Um, once, David said, once have I heard that, once have I heard this, twice has it been said, power belongeth unto God. All power belongs to God, every ounce of it. So what he delegates to humans um, may be administered poorly. Um, they'll answer for that. But the, the power itself ultimately comes from God. Now, we don't really look at this anymore. We, we don't have monarchies. But most of us probably remember the, the term divine right of kings. Um, <clears throat> anybody remember that? Apparently we don't. <laughs> Apparently everybody does. Um, divine right of kings is an ancient um, position that forbade resisting the king. 
because the king was set on the throne by the gods or in the Christian kingdoms, God. Um, so I think that maybe the last thing I could say, the power that's exerted in civil government is ordained by God and is supposed to, hardly ever does, but it's supposed to reflect the heavenly powers and throne and so forth. Now I don't know if that, I think it's a tough thing to um, separate because I think you're right. There's clearly, there's clearly heavenly armies. There's hierarchy in heaven. You've got Gabriel, you've got Michael, the archangel, you know. Um, obviously you've got the throne of God. Um, so everything on earth, to some degree, even in a fallen case, is, is a reflection of God and his kingdom. So um, <clears throat> I think it's probably both and. However, I can escape that you know, horn of dilemma. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, <clears throat> any other questions, thoughts? Before we maybe look at a couple other further questions. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Daniel. He yes. He used to eat the meat because that was against what God had told him. Yeah. But he still was a servant and he still asked permission to do his own diet. And through that was a witness to every, everyone else. That's in my notes to bring up. No, that's fine because it's perfect. Daniel, you know, w was up against a command by the king in Babylon to violate what then was God's law for clean and unclean foods that the Israelites were not to eat. And it here's there's a good there's a good blending here of um, immovable adherence to the law of God but coupled with um, proper reverence or fear of the earthly authority, the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Because there's a real, real strong word. Daniel, it says, purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's food. Okay? That word purposed is a real strong word. He, uh, it's like he drove a um, pier down into the ground and he wasn't moving. So what does it say? It says, and so he requested of the servant that was, of the king that was over the captives, he requested that he not have to eat that food and proposed a test. Let me eat our food that is okay from God and do it for 10 days. And if we look sicker um, in 10 days, then you win. If we look healthier, then let us, let us eat our own diet. Um, there's to me there's a blend he served God and, and if it came to it he wasn't going to eat it even, even if it went bad with him because a chapter two later in Daniel you have Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were commanded bow down to this 90 foot gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar you're going in the furnace and you know they said O king um, we don't mean to be you know um, uppity with you <laughs> But we're not going to do it. And they said, our God's able to deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Um, we'll get to that hopefully here in a second. But <clears throat> back to the helps, the guideposts in making, coming to the right conclusion of what what behavior and so forth is right or wrong. 
There's a second decision we have to make that we don't think about, I don't think, very often. We gotta figure out what's right and wrong. But, and that's the four things I gave you. But then we also have to make a decision regarding the same issue. Is it essential to salvation or not? There are clearly, in Romans 14, there are certain customs, certain behaviors that seemingly one person thinks they're wrong, the other person thinks they're right. Paul says, leave each other alone. Don't bother each other. He thinks that in his heart. Let him think that and let him practice it, but don't, don't pastor him about it. What is he saying? If it would have been a spiritual matter, clearly from the word of God, he couldn't have said, eh, it's okay. So-and-so thinks you can, you know, pick whatever you want. Um, but so-and-so, he can go to strip clubs, and this guy thinks you probably shouldn't, but hey, they're all Christians. He, no, we're not talking about that, okay? Um, what God makes clear is not non-essential. The problem comes in when we think something is essential to salvation, meaning it's a heaven or hell issue, when it isn't. And how do we figure out whether it is or not? Anybody want to answer that? The same rules to some degree apply. Is it clear in Scripture and so forth? If it's real, real clear in Scripture, you, it, it, you shouldn't really even have to have a discussion whether it's right or wrong. I think it's right. He thinks it's wrong. And let's just let he, live and let live. Not if the Bible is so crystal clear on, and it is on the vast majority of doctrinal issues, it's essential. You can deny, <clears throat> you can deny <clears throat> the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. That's essential. You deny that, you're lost. I mean, that's the core of who God is, who his son is, plan of salvation. That's essential. Whether there is, let's pick something else that's in the Bible. Whether there's going to be a literal seven years tribulation before the rapture, if the rapture occurs before the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation, is there a real 1,000 year millennial, millennium or is that a figure of speech? Don't make that essential. Because <laughs> nobody knows for sure. It's in the book of Revelation, which is filled with figurative language, and we don't know for sure. Not enough to say that, you know, I, I withdraw from you and I'm, I won't have anything to do with you because you're a heathen. <clears throat> Had a couple, a family that um, was in our church for a while. This was a number of years ago. Um, and then they, they left because I said, um, I hoped that they were right, but I knew they were wrong. <laughs> um, they said that we're going to have the rapture is going to be for the tribulation, so we won't see trouble, and God will carry us away, and all the, all the horrible stuff that's going to happen to this earth will be safe in, in heaven watching it over the balcony. Okay? And I said, I really hope you're right, but I know good and well you're wrong. Because... Jesus said, those horrible days, they'll be shortened for the sake of the elect, my people. They're going to be here. That may be us. So forget the notion that we're going to be helicoptered out of here um, and escape all the trouble. Okay? But I don't separate over that disagreement. You can believe that there is a tribulation that the rapture takes you out before it comes and you can believe that the rapture is not till after the tribulation and we can both go to heaven. Okay? We both believe in Christ. We both believe God, you know, the scripture. 
this particular family insisted that because I didn't believe that the tribulation occurred, be or that the rapture occurred before the tribulation, that then therefore I didn't believe in the rapture at all. I said, I never said that. I just said I don't, I believe in the rapture. I just trying to figure out when it's going to be. Nope, <clears throat> you don't believe that it's after or before the tribulation, saving us from the tribulation. You don't believe in the rapture. So they left. I don't know, four, five, six years later, they came back for a while. And I never said anything to them about the rapture. But something else I said, I don't know what that was, they left again, okay? Um, that's the kind of stuff God doesn't, that's, that's where you end up with 50 million denominations. We take non-essential teachings in Scripture, and when I say non-essential, I don't mean they don't matter, but I mean it's, there's room for question, there's room for debate, and they're not clear enough that we're, we can't be certain. We can be certain about who Jesus is, but I don't know about the tribulation and the rapture. The problem is people take non-essential doctrines and make them essential, and so we divide over things that aren't essential. And of course, some go the other way. They take essential doctrines and make them a matter of opinion and don't worry about it. Either way is, is not good, okay? Um, now, <clears throat> is there, well, let me ask you this. Um, what I don't know which one of these questions I asked first. Let's, let's say this. Um, what's your opinion of to what extent and what purpose, so forth, um, should Christians be involved or uninvolved in um, earthly government? Now, there's a, there's a whole, there's a huge swath, and I'm not being, I, I have no issue with them, but I'm just stating a fact. There's a huge swath of more conservative Baptist churches, of which there are a lot in our country, who take the position that we have nothing to do with the civil government, you government leave us alone and we leave you alone. They will even argue, and it's misunderstood, they will argue against prayer in schools. They've been some, along with, unfortunately, with atheists, there have been a whole swaths of conservative Baptists who have strongly resisted prayer in schools. Their argument is not that they don't believe in prayer and believe in God, but they just say, we don't want them messing with us. If we mess with them, they're gonna end up messing with us. You go your way, we'll go ours, okay? Um, what is our place then, to what extent of any should we participate in um, the governments that we're under. Should we just have nothing to do with it? Um, stay out of, yeah. Uh, make disciples of all the nations as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, uh, a lot of dirty people there, but at the same time, God, God called us to clean the fish bowl. Okay. Other comments? Yeah. Well, your government should be a representative of, of all of its people, correct? So Christians never <coughs> have any type of civil office, but it's not a representation of all people. Okay, if you didn't hear that, government should represent all the people, and if a good portion are Christians, then uh, Christians need to be um, need to be representative, uh, represented. 
Yeah. Okay. We obviously can't rant and rave about the degraded condition of things if we if we have nothing to do with it, <laughs> or voluntarily, you know, withdraw. Other thoughts. Should you run for office? Seems like a lot of heads nodding. Um, <clears throat> the, there's, there, I don't know how best to word this, but um, would the, what's the goal? What should be the goal of a Christian who, let's say, runs for office or, you know, volunteers to be on some city board or whatever, but some degree of involvement, what, what should they feel their purpose is as a Christian in that particular office? Pardon me? Salt and light. Okay. Salt and light. The word there, I don't, and I'm, not, I'm making too much of it, I know, but it's be, not necessarily do. It's be salt, be light. There's something to some degree of, um, I don't know if this is the right, a good word or not, it's a passive influence. I read something that I would m- mention at this point. Um, our goal as Christians should always be the redemption of individual human beings, not the attempted redemption of a structure, meaning I want to be a Christian because I want to turn this legislature around. I mean, running for this. I, I'm running for whatever because we're gonna, I'm going to turn this into a Christian city council. That's, that's not what God's interested in. Now, hang with me. God, God is not interested in saving all of the structures of power and governance and so forth that we have in this world because he said, this world's passing away. He's out to rescue individual souls now you rescue and redeem by the grace of God enough of them and you will change the power structure okay yeah uh, I, I joke I tell people uh, do nations go to heaven when they die <laughs> yeah yeah I think then <clears throat> to me I can say this because about that thought I just gave you because I didn't think of it, okay? That is, that is a deep and correct thought. Our goal as Christians is to win other human beings, bring them to love Jesus. Um, two things, fairly old, one new. A book I read not too long ago, well, it probably been a couple of years anyway, was what's the job of a preacher they were talking about. They just fi- simply said this. It's to, it's to help move people onto God's agenda for them. I can't save anybody. When Peter, Jesus said to the disciples, who do people say I am? Well, you're Jeremiah, you're whoever. He said, but yeah, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, Jesus' immediate response was, blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father 
who's in heaven. What's he saying? I remember this all the time. I can't show somebody their heart. I can be a tool that God uses for me to say something that he can use to show them their heart. I can't show somebody their heart. I can't convict them of what they're doing. I can't help them see um, where they're off of God's path. Only God can change a heart and reveal a heart. He's a heart-knowing God. So he reveals hearts to us. We see, dear God, am I that bad? Do I sound like that? Am I really like that? And he says, yeah, you are. No human could do that for another human. Only God can do that. Um, so we're just to be instruments, tools, um, be light. How are we light, let's say, in, in this case, let's say, in a government position? What does being light and being salt mean? Anybody? Yeah. Chase away the darkness. Yeah. Light dispels darkness. Even a little light, a candle in a large room, drives darkness away. We can be light without saying a lot. We can just be light by our attitude, by our... Um, Honesty, you know, um, a Christian employee um, doesn't steal tools from work. <laughs> um, they don't participate in, you know, the off-color junk in the lunchroom. Um, we're being a light. Um, and it's amazing how much people really know <laughs> Uh, they'll clean their language up. Maybe they hardly recognize it. But they'll not say some things um, if they know you're a Christian. Um, I mean, it, you'll get this, excuse my French stuff. Uh, you know. But the point is, they, the light penetrates. Um, and what does salt do? Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. One thing is, it retards spoilage. It is a hedge against rot. And if there's enough salt in the society, then the society will be bettered. But again, technically, God's aim is not to save the society. It's to save every human heart he can, and they will leaven the society. Okay, um, quick maybe illustration here. John Wesley, the Methodists in England, um, just went around preaching in the fields and the, s the city um, squares and the parks um, that people would get right with God. They didn't talk about politics. They didn't get into, of course, they had the king. You don't, you know, let's overthrow the king. Um, they just stuck to the gospel. We need God. Well, enough people got converted that England was transformed. Now, not everybody got saved. And after a few generations, you know, the rot gained a foothold again. But I have a book called... Um, it's a really good title that I can't remember. Uh, it's something to do with, with uh, yeah, it's called Revivalism, speaking mostly about England, but also America, the Great Awakening, so Revivalism and Social Reform. Um, because enough people, especially in England, got right with God, and these are subjects Wesley never preached on. I don't know any Methodists that I ever read that ever, ever preached on but child labor laws got changed. Treatment of the insane. You ever heard of Bedlam? Bedlam was the name of an insane asylum in London. And the rich would 
um, on their days off, even Sundays, part of their entertainment was to get in their coaches and drive through the grounds of Bedlam and laugh at and be entertained by the crazy people that were running all over the place and swinging from the branches or whatever. They reformed treatment of uh, prisoners, debtors' prison, throw somebody in jail till they pay their debt, but they can't work. Um, bear baiting, cock fighting, dog fighting, all of those kinds of issues were part, enough Christians got into Parliament. It wasn't that they went and said, we're going to convert Parliament and change Parliament so that they can fix stuff. It was a ground floor. Individual human hearts got saved, some of whom were already in Parliament, and they took their Christianity with them to Parliament. Same thing really in the early, early church. Christians had no part in the government at all. It was people that were already in it that got saved. And so God kind of underground sneaked into stuff and got enough Christians saved that changed things. The last letter in 1791 that John Wesley wrote, and it's, I've seen pictures of it, a real shaky hand. It's written to William Wilberforce who was then, um, what would he have been? Um, what do they call it in, in, well, it's the prime minister, I think. Anyway, he wrote it to Wilberforce to keep pressing the fight against slavery, to stop slavery. And England had little of actual slaves in the British Isles, but they were major slave traders. And most of the shipping and so forth um, was all British. Um, anybody know who John Newton is? Anybody here? Ever heard of Amazing Grace? John Newton was converted and he was a slave owner or slave ship owner. And that's what he did ruthless, bad guy, got saved, wrote Amazing Grace, became a pastor. Um, but all the way from betting on cockfighting to eliminating slavery was a result. It wasn't really the end aim of God and the Methodists. It was a consequence of enough people getting saved that it was like leaven in the whole country. Um, that's what I think God wants to do with Christians participating in civil, thor uh, civil government. We should never abandon it, but we should go into it to serve to do a good job, to be faithful, and to be light and salt. Okay. Um, real quick, we'll solve this in about three minutes. Um, when is it, in light of scriptures, honor the king, submit to the authorities that are over you, pay taxes, all this, when is it justified to resist the power that is over us seemingly um, if we don't, if we look too simply at it, seemingly contradicting, contradicting honoring the king and so forth. When is it justified to resist that authority even if it's ordained of God? Nobody has a, any idea. Yeah. Whenever it contradicts God's law or God's laws and rules. So if uh, <clears throat> you're not able to uh, worship 
Yeah. Yes, I believe as Christians, we are justified in, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's violent resistance, but it is the term I suppose we could use, civil, you know, nonviolent. Um, the disciples in the scripture never, the only time they came close to resorting to physical um, resistance was Peter wailing away with a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and Jesus told him, he said, you know, he, and, and James repeated it, you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. Um, but to resist, that's a case. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, we don't know this for certain, but there's strong, strong Jewish um, tradition that, you know, in Hebrews it says some, of the, some people were sawn in half, cut in half as torture for being, you know, whatever, serving God. Strong Jewish oral tradition, which I think is pretty valid, is that it may have happened to other people, but it happened to Isaiah, the prophet, and it was carried out by Manasseh, uh, son of Hezekiah, and Manasseh turned out to be the absolute worst king Judah ever had, and he reigned the longest. He was the longest ruling king and the worst. Um, but there's all of the martyrs were people who resisted the powers that were over them because the powers exerted pressure on them to violate their conscience and the clear word of God. When we were in Europe, we went to Oxford and um, went into this pretty small um, town square in Oxford where a number of burnings at the stake took place. But at least three people that I um, had read um, their lives and known about, a guy named Thomas Cranmer, then there was a guy named Hugh Latimer, and then there was another guy, I can't remember his first name, but Ridley um, was his uh, last name. At different times, well, Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake together. Thomas Cranmer um, was Archbishop um, of Church of England. And I think it was Mary, Queen of Scots, who came to the throne. She was a Catholic trying to bring then England back to being Catholic. And I can't believe they did this and couldn't figure out a better way to do it. But they made a scaffold not, not, not to hang him from, but they made kind of a platform, a raised platform for Cranmer to stand on as, and give testimony and be, be charged and interrogated in, um, I think it's St. Mary's Church in, or Christ Church in Oxford. And to attach, to build this kind of pedestal for him to get up on, they... Um, chiseled out in those massive stone pillars. They chiseled out a corner and kind of built a niche in there that they could put a beam to hold this contraption up that they made a witness stand for him. And, you know, there's a plaque explaining why that chunk of the stone is gone. Um, now, I, I look at somebody like that that's part of the reason, um, you'll have to bear with me, I guess. I love history, and I have, I think, a real, uh, I think it's a right reverence for people like that and what they stood for, um, what they endured. That's one of the reasons. Now, Cranmer, Cranmer wrote the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Every time we have communion, every time I marry somebody, which you know I, I avoid when I can, but um, weddings and all that, Cranmer wrote that. Cranmer wrote that prayer that we pray every time we have communion, that we would um, perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. 
when we participate in those prayers and those rituals that are um, go back to the mid 1500s and the kind of men they were that's why I like to stick to that kind of stuff you know and not have gibberish <laughs> anyway um, you have to be out of here in one minute so um, whenever whenever we're what legislated or something threatened to disobey God cut worship to God and so forth we are um, doesn't necessarily mean violence but we're to resist I don't have to knuckle under then it would be um, it would be cowardice and betrayal not to resist okay well probably more we could say there but we got to get going <clears throat> let's um, let's just bow our heads quickly for prayer we'll be dismissed not sure what we'll do next week um, but I thought of a couple more issues we can deal with so we'll see Father in heaven help us be um, shining lights in a dark world and by that draw people to you and as Peter said be always ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us to those who ask us so Lord help us just be light and salt in this desperate world we pray it in Jesus name Amen okay you are dismissed <laughs>